You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. If you are looking for a place to read and grow your intellectual life, welcome. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. We are talking about The Human Condition by Hannah Arendt. We're going to be on section 42 today, which is a very nice long title, The Reversal Within the Vita Activa and the Victory of Homo Faber. Translation, process has become king in modern man's endeavors. He no longer cares about purpose. He no longer cares about what things are. He only cares about the how is her contention. I have some points of agreement and disagreement, so stick around if you want to hear more about this. Otherwise, get lost. I'm just kidding. Enjoy the ride. But before we start that, we have a couple announcements. So we have 10 copies of Andrew Clavin's A Strange Habit of Mind that will be in our hands in October. So if you would like to enter to win a copy of Andrew Clavin's A Strange Habit of Mind, please make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. Otherwise, go pre-order a copy yourself. The other thing we have for our subscribers is a promo code for the rise and triumph of the modern self. But you have to be on our newsletter for these things. So If you are not a member on our newsletter, please go to solomonscorner.com and find the subscribe button on that website. If you want a really easy place to find it, go to the book club tab. You can find a subscription to our newsletter there. But the promo code for Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, you will get 50% off. That's right, 50% off this very timely book. For those that don't know, Carl Truman was in the documentary, What is a Woman?, And his book has definitely been recommended to me several times and will be our book club book from October through November. So that leads me to the next book club uh, item, which is our next book is going to be starting next week, A Captive Mind uh, by Shejwo Miwosh. You have to say it like Elmer Fudd, so send me your best examples of that on Twitter. But Shejwo Miwosh, The Captive Mind, is going to be the next book that we do. It'll be our September read. It's a much shorter read, much easier read. It's a novel on communism and delves into a lot of the psychology of communism. I think everybody who listens will find that very interesting. We probably won't do a daily podcast for that one on the book club, but stay posted. We'll keep keep the content coming. With that said, make sure you subscribe to the Solomon's Corner newsletter so you can get all these cool and fun things. Now we're going to dive into the content. So, When I wrote my notes on this section, my first question was, what is Arendt's point? It's a very convoluted chapter, and you definitely need a little bit of philosophical training. If you haven't figured that out already, then you're probably misunderstanding the book a little bit. But the main purpose of this chapter was for her to kind of show that the modern project had gotten wrapped up in its efficiency and processes. So on page 295, She talks about, this is right at the beginning, Uh, she talks about a theme that actually we have talked about several times on this this podcast, the idea of man um, starting to make nature and its objects, no longer being a participant in nature, but actually imitating the divine in a lot of ways uh, through creating nature's objects, not just merely tools and things like that, but actually creating nature as he sees fit. She says, the experiment repeats the natural process as though man himself were able to make nature's objects. And although in the early stages of the modern age, no responsible scientist would have dreamt of the extent to which man actually is capable of, quote-unquote, making nature. He nevertheless, from the onset, approached it from the standpoint of the one, that's capital O, who made it. 
and this is not for practical reasons of technical applicability, but exclusively for the quote-unquote theoretical reason that certainty in knowledge could not be gained otherwise. So she's trying to say here that man has reached a technological achievement that no other period in time really has. She gets into it a little bit in the beginning, I guess, with the Romans and talking about them, but if you live today, you know that we are living in an exceptional, exceptional time. So process is what has ultimately become the the foundation of our purpose and all the things that we care about. So to give you an example from this past week, Mark Zuckerberg was was on the Joe Rogan experience. And Mark Zuckerberg was being asked, this isn't about the FBI stuff, so don't get your... Uh, don't get your tinfoil hats on about the FBI and all that kind of stuff. But the intro to that podcast, he starts talking about the Oculus VR headset and augmented reality. And he starts talking about how he likes to entertain a thought experiment about what physical objects don't need to be physical. And one of the one of the things he says as an example would be your TV. Like you could just have a holographic wall, basically, that projects whatever you want to watch when you want to you just snap your fingers he says and then all of a sudden the display appears and you can watch your soccer games and all this kind of stuff and of course you can almost see it on joe rogan's face but why why would you do that but mark zuckerberg is already way down the line he's already wrapped up in the process and this might be you know and i'm I'm sure if i if you know there's uh professional philosophers here they probably would rake me over the coals but the famous example of Jurassic Park, Jeff Goldblum's character, you were so, so obsessed with whether or not you could do it, you didn't stop to ask whether or not you should. And this is because it's more of being obsessed with the process. The process continues to feed itself with each subsequent step of achievement. The scientist then says, well, what else can I do? And what else can I do? And it becomes all about the process and no longer about the what or the or the or the why. So Arendt says this on 296, the shift from the why and what to the how implies that the actual objects of knowledge can no longer be things or eternal motions, but must be processes, and that the object of science therefore is no longer nature or the universe, but the history, the story of coming into being of nature or life or the universe. And she continues on, nature, because it could be known only in processes, which human ingenuity, the ingenuousness of homo faber, remember that is the Latin term for creator, human creator, could repeat and remake in the experiment, become became a process, and all particular natural things derive their significance and meaning solely from their functions in the overall process. In the place of the concept of being, we now find the concept of process. And this is a wink, I think, to Heraclitus, who believed that being was actually just a, a constant uh, flux. That uh, the example he gives, he's an ancient Greek philosopher. He, uh, in fact, he might be pre-Socratic, but I can't, I can't remember. the The river of being is always flowing, and a man never puts his foot in the same place twice. This is the idea that reality is just kind of this bubbling brook that's constantly in motion, and it's not static. And so, every time you think you've got a grasp on it, it's already down the river and now reality is something different and so Arendt is kind of linking this together with our modern era and she's going to tie that to Cartesian doubt which is one of my favorite aspects of of this whole book
But I want to camp on this idea of a process and, and tie it back to our modern time with Musk and Zuckerberg. I think that while she's correct in some regard, maybe maybe for the general population that process is king. If you ask you know, the average guy, why does he have the job that he has or any of these kinds of things, he'll ultimately refer to some aspect of the corporate process. Well, because I want to have a good paying job. Well, why do you want a good paying job? Well, because that way I get a good 401k and I get a good benefits and I get all these things. Well, why do you want those? Well, because I want to make sure that I can leave something and retire well. Well, why do you want to do that? Because I want to spend time with my family and all these kinds of things. And then it's like, well, why are you saving your money? Well, because I want to leave something for my kids. Well, why do you want to do that? And you can continue to ask why, 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 just like an annoying little toddler. And this is something that um, most people would rather not do because ultimately they don't really know why they are doing the things that they're doing. They don't have a purpose or anything. They have actually become a worshiper of the process and no longer a, a man or woman who is aiming at a purpose. Um, and Musk, I think, and, and Zuckerberg, I think they know in some part why they are doing what they're doing. Mark Zuckerberg says he wants to connect people. That's his big thing. But again, the question we should ask is connect them for what? Well, so that they can, so that the, the process can be more efficient. So that what, what are we building is, is ultimately the question. Musk would say, well, I want to travel and, and, and have adventures out in space because it's, it's inspiring to, to, he'll say about going out into outer space. Okay. Fair point. But why is it, why, why should we care about in, inspiring human beings? Well, for the survival of the species, I guess that's at least an aim, but in that case, then, you know, Arendt would be actually, I think, be wrong to a certain extent when it comes to applying this to individual elites, because they, they seem to actually know exactly what they want. And when I say elites, I don't mean that in the political term. I just mean that in the sense of people who are exceptional and good at what they do and rise to the top. I don't, I don't think that Musk or Zuckerberg, if you ask them what their purpose in life was, I, I think they could actually give you an actual aim and, and uh, definition of some of these things because they have actually thought this through and started figuring out processes to put in place. But I do think, on the other hand, Arendt is correct, and I think she's more uh, correct rel relative to the general population, that most people are just more concerned with the process. And I think that's more what she's trying to describe here. She's not, she's not sitting here saying human beings on the individual level no longer have a purpose. If you actually were to talk to them and, and drill down, you would find that they might actually have an answer to, well, what is man and what is a purpose and these kinds of things. They might actually have an answer for that, but they get absorbed into this process, culturally speaking, and when we consider mankind from a corporate standpoint or from a community standpoint, they've been absorbed into the process. So we continue on, and she basically says this whole problem of process and, and man being this... Um, being completely and, and totally abandoned of the natural order of things has come from Descartes. She says on page 298, one of the most plausible consequences to be drawn from Cartesian doubt was to abandon the attempt to understand nature and generally to know about things not produced by man and to turn instead exclusively to the things that owed their existence to man. And I think she's right about this. The reality of what she's saying here about man being more concerned about things that man has created versus nature itself 
is actually manifested in my experience in a lot of classes on metaphysics and philosophy in general. You rarely start with natural things when you're trying to introduce somebody to metaphysics. And when I say metaphysics, um, I'm not talking about, you know, weird pagan weirdos. I'm talking about, you know, Aristotle, Plato, and the study of existence. And one of the things, or causes and effects in the most general way possible. And one of the things that you can do to confuse a student very quickly is to ask them, what is the purpose of a tree? And they will struggle because they will always be able to give, you know, proximate purposes. They'll be able to say, well, maybe it's to become a chair. Maybe it's to become a house. Maybe it's to become firewood. Those are all what we would call proximate purposes or proximate t- uh, teli or, or telos. Um, that's the Greek term for, for end. But the, uh, I think it's, I think that's right. Anyway, that's, that, that's what it, that's what it ends up meaning. But when you say, okay, yeah, sure. But what's the ultimate purpose of a tree? Um, they, they really kind of struggle with this. And that's because natural things are actually very difficult to kind of analyze metaphysically. But when you say, what is the purpose of a computer? Well, they almost always say, well, to compute or to process. And that's because man-made things have a very narrow telos. They might have been made for, their purpose might lead to other extra things, just like, you know, firewood would lead to heat, and therefore we could say, well, now what's the purpose of heat? But the difference with the computer is that its purpose is constrained to whatever the human mind had had at the time of its creation. So you find that this um, this turn away from nature, because after all, we can't trust our senses, so we can't really know any of these objects very well, not in the same way that we can know, for example, a geometric plane or a table or something that's created by a human, a human being, because we can always go and talk to the creator, for one, and actually find out why he made what he made. So we find ourselves in this, this Cartesian doubt, and this is a real problem, because if you look at what everybody is doubting right now is the nature of things. What's the nature of a woman? Is the same question as, what is a woman? It's, 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 it's asking the same metaphysical questions, and we used to just understand these innately, but as C.S. Lewis said, if technology continued to develop, the conditioners, quote-unquote, capital C, would eventually begin to make man's conscience in his own image. They would be able to start reframing the discussions that we are having and the rules of those discussions, and that's exactly what's happening today. And so I think she's right on the Cartesian the Cartesian doubt front. But like all of these chapters at the very end, which I think is, is really interesting in this, the, the Vita Activa, have, have all had some very spiritual parallels or explicit spiritual principles talked about in them. And as she goes through towards the end, she starts talking about the fact that if, if, if man, the creator, homo faber, as she, as she calls him, and I might be butchering that pronunciation, but I know there's some linguists who listen to this podcast now, multiple Latin experts, so they'll definitely let me know. But Homo Faber, if, if he wants to actually come to the ideal or come to the eternal rest of what she calls, you know, she talks about the platonic ideas, that this idea of the idea in the mind is a place of rest because it, it's untainted by the of, by the material, and it's, it's, it is actually perfect as it exists in the mind. She says that man has to start contemplating the eternal things. 
she says here on page 303, it is not wonder that overcomes and throws man into motionlessness, but it is through the conscious cessation of activity, the activity of making, meaning to stop making, that the contemplative state is reached. If one reads medieval sources on the joys and delights of contemplation, it is as though the philosophers wanted to make sure that Homo Faber would heed the call and let his arms drop, finally realizing that his greatest desire, the desire for permanence and immortality, cannot be fulfilled by his doings, but only when he realizes that the beautiful and eternal cannot be made. And when you read this last section here, what came to my mind was Aquinas' famous quote after he apparently had the beatific vision, where for those non-Catholics out there, Catholic legend says that he saw God, I'll say Catholic legend. I'm not sure if that's an official position of the Catholic Church or not, that he actually had it, but I'm pretty I'm pretty sure it is. But we'll go with, with the fact that it that it's a legend for now. But he said at the end of his that after this experience that everything he had written was a straw and worthless and should be committed to the flames. Something to that extent. Or you have Augustine's famous quote, Our souls are not at rest until we find our rest in thee. These two things are very interesting parallels to Aristotle and Plato. One professor I had, Dr. Richard Howe, had this uh, image on my first philosophy class that always stuck with me to kind of demonstrate the two strains, strands of thought that kind of go through all of philosophical history through the medievals, is you have Aristotle and Plato in the, in the Greek tradition, which are famously, those are the ones that everybody knows, and Augustine kind of baptized Platonic thought to some extent, and Aquinas baptized Aristotle to some extent. Well, really, Aquinas baptized both. And I know Aquinas a little bit more on, on how he did that with the with the two more than I do uh, Augustine. But the point is, is that you find in Arendt the same kind of idea that is communicated in the church thinkers and church fathers, that man is obsessed with his doings and his survival, and it's only when they find that their rest is in God, in the eternal, the idea that can't be corrupted, that he finds his rest. And so, when we come back full circle with the question of, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? In order for a man or woman to answer the question, why? You don't just have to know reality. You also have to know yourself. Why are you doing this is different than why is humanity doing X. And so when we start asking the question why, as thinkers, especially as theological thinkers or Christian thinkers specifically, the why that you have for what you're doing the project you're on, the jobs you have, the why has to be reflective, not just of the purpose of the the task at hand, but it, it also has to be a question that's answered by who you are as a person. And Arendt is a very interesting writer because she starts off these chapters and you just don't think that she's going to go anywhere with it that's really meaningful. And then all of a sudden she has this kind of wink to Christianity to a certain extent and you find yourselves realizing, oh yeah, I guess Christianity was right. We won't find our rest until we find our rest in thee. And it's important for thinkers and, and workers of all kinds to stop and just think 
and meditate on the eternal ideas, not just the eternal ideas of philosophy or any of these kind of more secular things, but also the divine eternal ideas, the, the attributes of God, and to wrestle with those and to write them out and to meditate on them, because after all, sometimes you just got to let your arms drop and contemplate why. Thanks for listening. I'm Daniel Roberts. Keep thinking.